This morning we're going to talk about uh, Faith Founded on Fact, Part 2. This is a second part of a, probably what's going to turn out to be a three-lesson series on the resurrection of Jesus. We are looking primarily in these first two lessons at the fact that the resurrection of Jesus is a factual event. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a legend. It's not a myth. It's not a nice story. It's an event that's recorded in historical documents that have been validated by historians as far as meeting the criteria of what historical documents need to look like. It contains eyewitness testimony that people saw a resurrected Jesus. He was not just resurrected in the mind of people, but there was a bodily resurrection. If you caught Jay's reading from Alistair Begg, he talked about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Many people say, oh, the resurrection is fine. They, just, they saw him again in their mind. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says they saw him in a physical form just like his previous body, but with the ability to do supernatural things, hence the new resurrected body. And also there is the analysis of scholars that have looked at this event. And even though they may not believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead, they point out the fact that it cannot be denied that Jesus died, that he was buried, and on the third day his body wasn't there anymore. The historical documents confirm that it's what explains the empty tomb that's of great importance. And it's an issue of great debate as well. And since the very beginning, and we'll see this in Matthew, you can go ahead and turn over to Matthew 28, our first text will be there. From the very beginning, there is an attempt to rule out that Jesus really was resurrected. We're going to see that that happened at the very beginning, and that's been done throughout time. We're going to look at some of the major challenges to a physical resurrection of Jesus, and we're going to see how Scripture itself and reasoning, Scripture itself and reasoning answers each of these challenges. But you might say, well, what's the big deal? Why would someone want to challenge the resurrection? It's, it's our only hope of life after the grave, of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. Why deny, uh, why, why turn away the lifeboat that's then been sent out to us? The ramifications of the resurrection being true could not be any greater. The resurrection validates who Jesus was. Elsewhere in Scripture, uh, it said of the resurrection, Jesus proved himself to be the Son of God. And once he's seen to be the Son of God, other things fall in line. His death for our sin, implying that we have sin, that's a problem, becomes an issue. The fact that we might need to change our lives because we'll be accountable to God one day becomes very real. A lot of things that people are very uncomfortable with become very real if the resurrection is true. It's not that people have a problem with coming back to life, it's with who Jesus is who brings us back to life. It's kind of like when I'm driving down 280. If I see a white SUV or a white Dodge Charger behind me, I'm not too bothered. But if I see a set of lights on the top of a car, I thought, well, what's a set of lights doing on these cars? It's not that I'm bothered by the set of lights. I'm bothered by what, Marigale? It might be... I might be in trouble because those set of lights indicate it's a vehicle of authority, highway patrol, or police. 
Not that I'm speeding, but it changes everything. The lights aren't the problem, it's what the lights mean. Same thing is true of the resurrection. It's what it means in the big scheme of life that people have difficulty with. I want to first look at the accounts that show that early on people got this. And they tried to squelch the resurrection. Matthew 28, look at 11 through 15. Look at the immediate attempt to explain away why the tomb of Jesus was empty on the third day. Verse 11, Matthew 28. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders, or when the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. Let's just pause here. These soldiers were guarding the tomb. And they we don't know what happened. So they give them a large sum of money, verse 13, telling them, you are to say. His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Just notice right off the bat, <laughs> there is an attempt to fabricate a false explanation concerning why that tomb was empty. Uh, the leaders say, hey, soldiers, we'll take care of you if anyone challenges what happened. I know you were supposed to be guarding, and you didn't do a good job, uh, but we're going to pay you a lot of money. We're going to take care of the higher authorities. You just tell this lie. The disciples came along and stole the body. So at the very beginning, there's an attempt to explain away the resurrection of Christ. But look over at Acts chapter 1. We'll look at Acts 1 and then chapter 26. Here's the problem with all alternate explanations. This event was done publicly, or it took place publicly, where there's a lot of people that could validate. And look how Luke affirms this at the beginning of the book of Acts, then again in chapter 26, Paul does. Luke begins in this book of Acts, the historical book of the early church. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, and after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Verse 3, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Here Jesus gave evidence or proof that he was alive. The, the resurrection is not some mystery event that happened behind a rock in some remote place of the world where only one person says they saw it. Luke says there were many convincing proofs that Jesus gave. Proofs, that is things that people could challenge and things that were evidence that he truly was risen from the dead and not his body was stolen and things like that. Look at Acts 26 now. Go forward in the book of Acts chapter 26. This is about 30 years later. About 30 years later, the Apostle Paul is standing before a Roman governor by the name of Festus. And he's defending himself before the governor. And notice what he says that the governor himself already knows. And this is the Roman governor he's talking to, not a believer. 
But he's kind of preaching a sermon to them. And he says, verse 22 beginning, in Acts 26, verse 22, But God has helped me uh, to this very day, so I stand here and testify uh, to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Verse 23, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to what? Rise from the dead. Would bring a message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24, at this point Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Verse 25, I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done how? In a corner. Here Paul is calling the hand on Fest. He says, don't try to say I'm insane or out of my mind or I've been in college too long and I got all these thoughts in my head. He says, you know these things. You're already familiar with them. That is, you know about this talk of Jesus rising from the dead. And this is 30 years later. And he says, because this wasn't done in a corner. That means it was done publicly enough where there were witnesses. There was too much that was obvious to others that this could just be explained away. And Paul's telling Festus, do you know this? So that shows how publicly known was this resurrection event. It's just what explains it. We're going to go quickly through a lot of information today. A lot of this will be for you to reference on your own. But we're going to look at these issues concerning the resurrection. First of all, notice that you have four resurrection accounts, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20, all speaking of the same event, but yet from different angles. But each one of those accounts are valid historical documents that have passed test of historical validia, uh, validity, I'm sorry, just like the, the life of Abraham Lincoln or Caesar crossing the Rubicon. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are subjected to the same test of any event of the past that's been recorded. Is there sufficient evidence to determine the trustworthy doc of the document? So you have these four historical accounts. Uh, you have the resurrection that's established by uh, credible uh, evidence recorded in these documents, confirmed by eyewitness testimony, affirmed by scholars, and attested to by non-believers. Uh, non-believers don't say that we know Jesus resurrected. They simply say, we know the tomb was empty. We just don't know how to explain it. Uh, here's that uh, example of that evidence. We looked at this last week. Gala Kornfeld in his book, The Historical Jesus, a scholarly man of the view in his world. 1982, he wrote this on page 186, Kornfeld. If all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly. It is indeed justifiable according to the canons of historical research to conclude that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was actually what? Empty <laughs> on the first or on the morning of the first Easter. He's simply saying uh, the evidence is too strong. The tomb was empty. We just don't know how to best explain it. J.W. McGarvey, a great historian of the past, 100 years earlier says, and he's talking about the same thing, 
what explains the empty tomb? Jada McGarvey says, by leading skeptics, it is now admitted, and this is 100 years before Cornfeld, first, that Jesus actually died and was buried. That's not an issue. Second, it is admitted that on or before the third morning, his body disappeared from the tomb. Third, the disciples came to believe firmly that he arose from the dead. McGarvey simply saying, this is not a debate among valid historians. That he died, he was buried, and that tomb was empty the third day, and that the disciples believed he was resurrected. It's whether or not the resurrection is the explanation. Uh, McGarvey goes on to say, the exact issue has reference to the last two facts and can be stated in two questions. Did the body disappear by resurrection or in some other way? And did the belief of the disciples originate from the fact of the resurrection or from some other cause? He nailed it. That's the issue. Did Jesus rise from the dead as the disciples believed? Or is there some other explanation for the empty tomb? Again, this is of great importance. If it's not as Scripture says, he rose from the dead, we believe in fairy tales. We believe in myth and legend if this event is not true as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Otherwise, we're believing a lie. And there's a lot of people that think we are. I have some Facebook friends that I went to school with that had some very mocking posts of Easter these last few days. I still love them, bless their heart, but they just mock this whole Easter thing because they think we're just believing in a bunch of stories that make no sense and have no credibility. So if one of your friends or family or someone you work with is, hey, this is just, you better be able to... Uh, Give them a reason of the hope that's within you, as Peter says. And not to say, well, I don't know. I just always believe this. You need to answer the charges that people have made. Well, here are the five alternate explanations that people have given for the empty tomb. These are the five ways that people have tried to explain. And we're going to look briefly at each. One, the no-death theory. Second, the stolen body theory. Third, the wrong tomb theory. Uh, fourth, the mass uh, hallucination theory. And then... Fifth, the church invention theory. Five major attempts to explain away the res resurrection of Christ. Here's the first. The no-death theory. Here's the claim of this theory. The claim is that Jesus never really died. The claim is, or the theory, that Jesus never really died on the cross. This used to be called what's called the swoon theory. The idea is this that Jesus only really fainted, and fainted really bad on the cross. And he fainted all the way to the grave, was buried, and just kind of came to himself later, uh, despite everything that happened with the flogging, with the whips, and uh, hanging on the cross for as long as he did, he was able to give it strength to push back the stone in front of the... Uh, a sepulcher and walk out and this went around and then eventually disappeared uh, somewhere later in life and that was it after he appeared just quickly to his apostles looking just fine. 
That's the, uh, the theory. Well, here's the response to that. In Scripture itself, in these historical accounts, Roman crucifixion confirmed death. Look at John 19. This is something you're very familiar with uh, regarding the death of Jesus. Whenever someone was crucified under Roman power, it was their way to not only kill someone, but to humiliate them in the process. They had to make sure the person was actually dead before they took them off the cross. Look at John 19. Look what John records the Roman soldiers did. Verse 31, John 19. It says, Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man. Remember there were two people next to Jesus? Broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. This is John writing about his own presence right there at the crucifixion of Jesus. And he's saying, I saw the soldier do that, stab him in the side, out came blood and water, confirming that he actually died on the cross. And again, you have the Roman presence themselves that could uh, give credence to this. If someone was running around saying, well, he never really died. The Roman soldiers would say, oh, yes, he did. Look what we did. You don't have to take one person's word for it here. John's saying, well, I know what I saw, and the Roman soldiers can validate it. Uh, the crucifixion torture argues against revival and escape. Matthew's account especially records an, a gruesome flogging of Jesus that was near, designed to bring a person near death as they beat them on the back with these whips that had all kinds of animal bones and pieces of metal on the end. That in and of itself many times killed someone or brought them near death before crucifixion, before they would hang the body up. Also, Jesus had to escape the guards. Uh, I don't know about you, I've never tried to escape a Roman guard, but I've seen movies about Roman guards. I don't think I could take them. So to believe that he was in this near-death state, somehow he revived in the tomb, though he didn't really die from the spear jabbing him, he's still really alive, and then somehow he got the stone back, and then he manhandled these guards and went sprinting out of there, and then showed up in front of the disciples looking just fine, boggles the mind. It takes more faith to believe that than it does that Jesus resurrected from the dead. But that is the first theory that some have presented. Here's what Clark Pinnock says about this. Um, he says, this theory is harder to believe than the biblical account. It is past belief how Jesus could have survived a crucifixion of six hours and a Roman spear wound and convince Pilate and his executioners that he was dead. Then he goes on. And then in a terrible state of pain, he endured the coldness of the tomb for three days, removed a large boulder at the door of his grave, eluded the guard posted at the sepulcher, 
convinced his disciples he had a glorious resurrected body and finally disappear and die in anonymity. Pinnock says a hypothesis of this sort only emphasizes how far a non-Christian will go to escape the inescapable. And when you run from the truth, it can make you look bad when you're trying to avoid something that has overwhelming evidence as being credible. Here's the second theory, the stolen body theory. Now this is the one that's highlighted there in Matthew. That early on, the Jewish leaders, when they realized Jesus is not there anymore, they started paying off the Roman soldiers guarding it with money saying, you've got to spin this story that the disciples stole the body. I know your guards. I know you had weapons. But you've got to tell this story. We're going to pay you off. We'll take care of the people that might question uh, that actually happening. We'll take care of it. This is a stolen body claim. This is simply the claim that the disciples or others stole the body. The initial problem with this theory that's right there at the end of Matthew is that it assumes the disciples had motivation, first of all, to steal the body. Jesus struggled all along. In fact, one of the readings this morning was Jesus chiding his disciples after his resurrection that how come you struggle to believe? All along, the disciples struggled to even believe Jesus was going to be killed let alone resurrected. So to believe they had a motivation then to steal the body and then try to prop him up as being alive simply defies everything we see about the disciples. They were very weak as far as believing that Jesus would rise from the dead, let alone he'd be killed. Also, it's hard to believe they had the ability to steal the body. These were not trained soldiers. These were not armed men. Peter apparently had a sword when Jesus was arrested and he tried cutting off the high priest's ear, but these are not men prepared to fight and take on the challenge, especially of a Roman guard uh, who was not to be messed with. So to believe they overpowered this guard and then stole the body and then tried to spin this lie to people that he'd been resurrected when they themselves did not even believe he would be resurrected simply takes a lot of uh, a lot of challenge of the mind to believe they'd actually do that. Uh, here's the response. There's no evidence of motivation to steal the body. Many times in criminal trials, the job of the defense is to present an alternate explanation. This Alex Murdaugh trial in South Carolina with that attorney and all that. When the evidence is overwhelming that someone actually did something, the defense attorneys still have to come up with some other explanation because all they need is one juror of 12 to say, well, I have reasonable doubt because it could have been Bob down the street. Well, the problem is if there's no evidence of Bob being involved and it's only this guy, you have to go with where the evidence goes. And there's no evidence of or motivation or there's no evidence, I'm sorry, of motivation to steal the body. There's no, there's no evidence of burial by the disciples. These guys did not work for a mortuary. They did not own ground where they could go to secure it and then bury the body in there. And what do police and what do trained people know to do? You go find the evidence where the ground looks disturbed. And the area of Jerusalem is not that big. The easiest way for the Romans or even the Jewish leaders to squelch this idea the disciples stole the body and buried it is just to start looking. Look for fresh ground that seems to be disturbed. 
and start digging. There's no evidence of that. The fact that the disciples were persecuted and eventually killed because of their belief Jesus was resurrected argues for his actual resurrection. Why die or even suffer five minutes for a lie that you invented and are perpetuating? People just don't do that. They cough up the truth the minute the pain starts. The rest of the disciples' lives was a life of pain, being beaten or threatened, and some even being killed for their belief that Jesus rose from the dead. And also, 2,000 years later, if Jesus was actually buried somewhere in the ground, the remains would likely have been discovered by now. Because there's so much interest in proving that there's some other explanation to the empty tomb. Nothing has been found. Three, the wrong tomb theory. The claim in this attempt to explain away the resurrection is simply this. It assumes the disciples were confused. It assumes the disciples were confused as to where Jesus was entombed, and they simply went to the wrong tomb. The women went to the wrong tomb. When Peter ran to the tomb, he went to the wrong tomb. Everyone was confused about where Jesus was buried. That's the theory. And they actually went to some vacant tomb, didn't see anything there, and boom, they said, there's the resurrection right there. But it's kind of like saying they got the wrong address. They went to the wrong house and based the rest of their lives on a wrong address. Well, the problem is the historical record. In Luke 23, the women carefully observed where and how Jesus was buried. Look at Luke 23 real quick. Again, these historical details around the death and the resurrection of Christ are very important because they're taking care of these explanations. Luke 22 Start in verse 50. Actually, we'll start in verse 49. This is right after the death of Jesus. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council. That's the Jewish council. Sanhedrin. A good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. That is to kill Jesus. He had come from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Verse 55 now. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Chapter 24 now, verse 1. On the very first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They had followed, just stopping here, they'd followed Joseph all along. Joseph was not some type of swindler. 
He was a member of the highest Jewish council, the Sanhedrin council. He just didn't go along with this plot to kill Jesus. But Luke makes the point that he was a good and upright man. He was someone of great standing, not someone given to trying to pull off con jobs. He takes him and puts him in a tomb where no one had been buried before. The women followed behind him. Then after the Sabbath on the first day of the week, they knew right where to go. It wasn't like someone had to give them the address or they had to search it up. And we have no idea where he is. Can someone tell us? Oh, 3849, sepulcher. All right, we'll go there. They saw it. They were eyewitnesses. And even more than that, the enemies of Jesus simply could have shown the correct tomb. They could have said, let's put this resurrection idea to arrest right now. Here's where he was buried. But they didn't do that. There was only one tomb that everyone knew of, that where he was buried, and it was empty. It's what explains it. So this wrong tomb theory takes more faith to believe than the resurrection of Jesus himself. The fourth, the mass hallucination, uh, hallucination, I keep saying that wrong, the mass hallucination theory. Here's the claim. The claim is that the witnesses only thought they saw Jesus. This claim gets a lot of traction because it's the idea that while Jesus resurrected in their mind, he resurrected in their mind because they wanted to believe so much that he would be resurrected. They just kind of just saw things. And there are people that we know of that talked about seeing things. And I was out walking on the trail, and I just saw. Or someone who loses a loved one will say, I, I, I saw one night Aunt Mildred, she was just up in the ceiling. And, and because we so much want to believe things about people that we miss dearly. Uh, sometimes we'll have dreams, and that dream will be so real to us. And, or at times in, of great sorrow and mental stress, we'll feel like we saw something. And those who are critics of the resurrection believe that, well, that's what happened with all the disciples. There was a mass hallucination or envisioning of a Jesus that never really existed at all. Well, here's the response to the, this theory of people hallucinating. Well, first of all, the disciples weren't looking for a resurrection. Remember where they went after the crucifixion? You can look up these texts. They went into hiding. They were scared to death that now the Jewish leaders or the Romans would go after them. They just lost their leader. They were in hiding. That's where they were when Jesus found them. They were in hiding. They were not on a stage somewhere or setting themselves up in the wilderness. We're just going to believe and by our own will that Jesus is back at, alive. Their mental state was just the opposite from wanting a resurrection. They were just concerned about protecting their own life. Also, the disciples saw a resurrected Jesus on multiple occasions. And also more than 500 people at once saw Jesus. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 30 years later, um, that most of the 500 people that saw him once are still alive today. Look at these resurrection appearances. We looked at these last week. You have to marry Magdalene first to the other women, to Simon, who's also called Cephas. You had Clopas. 
uh, and his mother on the way to, or another on the way to Emmaus. You had the 11 disciples, 500 at once, to James, to all the apostles, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, then to Thomas. The list continues, to Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, John 21. These are all separate appearances of the resurrected Jesus. To the 11 at the giving of the Great Commission, to the 11 apostles, uh, to the 11 at the Mount of Olives near Bethany, and then finally to Paul. It's one thing to say one person at one point in the time believed they saw Jesus. But here you have multiple people, and one of them doubting, remember Thomas? He says, I'm not going to believe it until I touch his side, until I touch his wrist. And then you have the Apostle Paul 30 years later sees the resurrected Jesus as he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. You can't claim that all these people were just seeing things. Like you can maybe with one person that might be a little little off or a little emotionally distressed. Multiple witnesses. You can't claim everyone at a car crash saw something other than a car crash. <laughs> you can't say that. And you can't say that about the resurrection too. Here's the fifth. The church fabrication theory. This is the one that probably hangs on the longest. It's the idea that the early church invented the resurrection. Basically, they created a story about Jesus rising from the dead. The idea goes like this. That the early church is so much later on, after all the commotion settled after the death, that later on they thought, man, so much has been invested in Jesus rising from the dead. Let's just go ahead and make it sound real. <laughs> and they just kind of decided we're just going to make up Jesus rising from the dead. Basically, it's saying that these very devout people decide they're all going to collaborate on a lie. Because they so much want it to be true that they're going to do the opposite of what their faith calls them to do. That is, lie instead of be honest. And they're going to fabricate even to the minute details and invent all these things about Jesus being resurrected. Okay, you, can, okay, you write that he says he saw Mary. Okay, you're going to write that doubting Thomas. Oh, that's beautiful. You lie about that they concocted this great story knowing all along they were lying and they wrote it down and it's been passed throughout 2,000 years and this lie just continues to gain momentum and this lie is now the most popular book of all time. It's a best-selling book. It's the most translated book. But is this really a lie? Well, lies don't last very long. I like to cite in lessons, there's a woman that, I'm sorry, a man that wrote a book called A Thousand Little Pieces about a life that he imaginally lived. And he was on the Oprah show. It turned out that he made up a bunch of the stuff. She called him out on that, called him back on the show. And I don't even remember his name anymore. The book is gone. I think you can buy it for 50 cents on eBay. Lies don't ever get the attention the Bible has. The problem with the church fabrication theory is, first of all, there's insufficient time, motivation, and organization for the disciples to make up this story, even if they wanted to. The Gospels were written within 30 years of the resurrection. That is, the people that actually saw Jesus resurrected were still alive. If he wasn't resurrected and someone was writing down, he really was, he really was, the people uh, could simply say, no, this didn't really happen. This didn't really happen. It could have been explained away in other ways. The early believers were not organized. In Acts 8, we find out that they scattered because of persecution. If you're going to have this big 
collaboration on a lie. You've got to be together, and you've got to have a private place, and you've got to all get on the same page. Acts 8, they all scattered when they were persecuted. And they were persecuted. You don't suffer for a lie. So the problem with this idea that over time the church fabricates the story goes against natural human nature. It goes against time to even try to pull off something this, like this. It goes against the idea of organization. They were all in different places. How could they all get together to create a lie that people believed the way uh, they were supposed to believe? Again, it takes more faith to believe this than it does just to believe Jesus resurrected. All five of these theories have three fundamental flaws. All five of these theories to explain away the resurrection have three fundamental flaws. The first is there's no evidence that exists for any of them. They're all just mind inventions. Just like an attorney might try to claim that Bob down the street did something when it's really this guy. <laughs> there's no evidence that Bob down the street did it. Second, the actual evidence we do have argues against all five of these alternate explanations. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote in great detail about the exact circumstances and settings surrounding the resurrection to provide credibility. John says at the end of his Gospels, I've written these things to you so that you may believe. Luke says, these things were shown by many infallible or convincing proofs. They're inviting scrutiny. They're inviting ex uh, investigation because they know what they were writing about really happened. And with all five of these, the alternate explanations take more faith to believe than the resurrection itself. Why try so hard to explain, uh, explain away the resurrection? The people that try so hard, they do so because they know if Jesus rose from the dead, he proved himself to be the Son of God. If he's the Son of God, he has the right to tell us what to do. He tells us we have a problem with sin and we have to live this way. And I want to live that way. And I don't want that. I don't want to believe in a creator. I don't want to believe in anything where someone's telling me what to do. And that's why people fight so strongly against the evidence for the resurrection. They get that the dominoes will fall if they believe that Jesus is the Son of God and they will have to change their life. And most people simply don't want to. Quick thoughts. As we leave this morning, even though we've looked at historical evidence, just know the practical realities. With Jesus rising from the dead, we find out that death has been defeated. Jesus proved that you can live again and to never die again. Even though Lazarus was brought back from the death, he would eventually die again. But Jesus came back from the death, and he sits now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And that is what is promised to us. Even though we die, we will eventually be resurrected, those who believe in Jesus, to die no more and to live forever with him in heaven. The resurrection of believers is certain, Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. A shattering victory over death was provided through Jesus. And that changes our life forever. It also affirms that future judgment is sure. You don't just drop out of existence when you die. Every human being that has ever lived, 
is living or will live will stand before God in judgment because our bodies will go on after the grave. Either to a resurrection experience with Christ forever in heaven or to a resurrection of judgment where the bodies will last forever in just the opposite place. The resurrection affirms that truth. Then finally, our service to God is worth it. I want to close with one verse. Paul writes after speaking extensively on the resurrection of Christ and its validity. He says in verse 58, 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our life has a practical benefit because of the resurrection of Christ. Not only that we will be raised to life ourselves, but everything we do in service to others, every sacrifice, every act of charitable giving, every time we give a listening ear to someone in their struggles, every time we help someone to go the direction of obeying the gospel and aligning their lives with God's will, is worth it. Because our actions in the present time echo in eternity. Everything we do. And that's why Paul says, know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Everything matters. Everything matters. God sees all. And know that what you do in his service now will be remembered in eternity. Because there will be an eternity where we will live forever with our God, with our brand new body, all because of the resurrection of Christ. Next week we're going to look at that brand new body. What does scripture say it's going to be like and what will we do with it in the future? But hopefully this evidence today helps. Hopefully this helps you know that you're believing in something that has been factually substantiated. And that you're not just believing in a story and, and a myth or a legend or a fairy tale like critics might try to claim. But your faith is founded upon fact. And you can know that every moment of your life that you live for God is worth it. And your faith is on solid ground. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Where do you prefer to stand today? On sinking sand or solid rock? If you're a believer, you're on solid rock. Let's go ahead and stand now and sing the song of encouragement that Nathaniel will read.